that hymn always reminds me of uh, my late grandfather, uh, who could often be heard from the kitchen belting out that hymn in a broad Welsh accent. He hadn't got a Welsh bone in his body, but he could do a great Welsh accent. Well, wonderful words. Privileged to sing it together. Let's come and pray to that redeeming God. Redeeming God, we thank you that in you we have a supreme guide, one who will guide us through life's journeys, one who will guide us safe the other side. Lord, as we come to this passage, this fearsome passage this evening, we pray that you would draw us closer to our Savior Jesus. May we see him in it this evening. Lord, would you cause us to rejoice in him, our redeeming Savior. It is only in him that we are safe that we have the hope of which we have been singing this evening. Help us rejoice in him, we pray. Amen. Amen. I was uh, walking through the school gardens, uh, and a friend was coming towards me, clearly bursting to tell me some news. Uh, I remember the occasion well. Neither of us should have been there. We were both bunking off lessons at the time. Uh, But that's not why I remember it. It was a Tuesday afternoon, Uh, The date was September the 11th, 2001. It's one of those events that you can remember where you were when the news broke. A cataclysmic event in our modern world. We all know what happened on 9-11. 19 terrorists, four planes, two towers, the Pentagon, 3,000 people dead. But what if you had known with absolute certainty on the afternoon of September the 10th what was going to happen? What responsibility you would have had if you had known what was round the corner? It would have profoundly affected the way you lived the next 24 hours, wouldn't it? Knowing the future comes with great responsibility. Well, Isaiah 63 gives us a glimpse of the future. And as we will see, our passage not only describes what is to come, it profoundly challenges us as we live in the present reality whilst knowing the future. Now last week we looked at Isaiah 63, the year of the Lord's favour. And as Bob opened that passage to us, we were able to look at that chapter through the lens of a sermon preached by none other than the Lord Jesus. As Jesus read from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue uh, at Nazareth and said those extraordinary words, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But as Jesus read from Isaiah 61, just flip back to Isaiah 61 if you've got your Bibles open. As Jesus read from Isaiah 61, he stopped halfway through verse 2. Listen to what he said. Uh, he, he read from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that is where he stopped. But see how verse 2 continues, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So why did Jesus stop halfway through that verse? I believe it was for this reason. When Jesus came the first time, he was ushering in the year of the Lord's favor. But he was not yet bringing the day of God's vengeance. That will be at his second coming. And it's that which is in view here in Isaiah 63. So often with the prophets, they were given an insight into the future, but kind of all as one event. Whereas the reality is that there is often, there was often, is often, a significant period of time between the fulfillment of one aspect of their prophecy and another. I often liken it to climbing a a, a mountain. There's one particular mountain, or it's a hill really, in the Lake District that, that illustrates it, it very well. Uh, the hill is called Catbells. It runs along the, the side of Derwentwater in the Lake District. Uh, it's a lovely climb. But the thing is, when you begin that climb, you start off and you look up and you see what you think is the summit. Uh, and you're quite encouraged. You think, oh, it's not that far away. That sh- shouldn't take too long. It'll be a nice, gentle uh, climb. But as you get closer to that point, you begin to see that in actual fact, that is not the summit. There's a higher point beyond it. What you can't yet see is that between those two high points, you have to go down a little bit and a long, a long way before climbing up again. You can see it much more clearly from the side, that there are these sort of two points, and there is a long distance in between. And it's a bit like that with the prophetic books In the Bible, the prophets were given insight into the future, but they saw it all condensed, if you like. God, of course, sees it much more clearly. He sees his own timescales. And it's as if those two summits represent the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And we, living this side of his first coming, we can see something of the distance that is involved between those two events. Isaiah didn't know that. That is why in uh, chapter 61, he prophesies that the one who comes in the spirit of the Lord comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. And to the people of God in Isaiah's day, what comfort and hope that message would have brought them. Did that despite their suffering and despair... God is still going to be at work. He will still show them favor. He will still be kind and gracious to his people. He will show them favor and he will judge their enemies. That combined message was one of great hope and comfort for God's people in Isaiah's day. But what about ourselves? The reality is that one part of Isaiah 61-2 has been fulfilled. The other is yet to come. And we're living in the period between the two. And yet we know with certainty that the day is coming. So Isaiah 61 that we looked at last week, that's already happened. It's already come. The year of the Lord's favor is here. Jesus has come. Jesus has brought it about. 
But Isaiah 63, well, we're still waiting for that day. But it is coming. History is headed somewhere. So many people in our our world feel that the world is just meandering aimlessly. That life is just pointless. And yet we know that history is heading somewhere. History is heading inexorably for the day when the Lord Jesus will return in all his glory. The Lord is coming. Number one, the Lord is coming in victory. Can you try and move the slides on? It's not working at this end. The Lord is coming in victory, verse 1. Isaiah sees someone coming from Edom, from Bozrah. Now, Edom is the people descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob. Jacob, of course, was the father of the nation of Israel. And ever since the days of Jacob and Esau, there has been enmity between their descendants. The Edomites had been uh, complicit, in fact, in helping the Babylonians defeat the people of God and carry them into exile. The Edomites had, had helped Israel's enemies. And the Bible is clear. Those who are enemies of God's people are enemies of God. And so when we read about Edom, we are to understand that actually they stand for all those who are enemies of God and of his people. Those who set themselves up against God and against God's precious people. So Isaiah sees this figure coming from Edom, from Bosra. Bosra is the capital city of, of the Edomites. So he's not just coming from the land of Edom. He's coming from their capital city. He's coming from the place where the king of the Edomites lived. He's coming from the place where the Edomites were ruled. The place of authority among the Edomites. And here comes one robed in splendor. What are we to make of all this? Well, here is one coming from the place where the enemies of God lived. And he's coming robed in splendor. Striding forward from that place in the greatness of his strength. So here is one coming who is greater and stronger even than the enemies of God. It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. See, Isaiah is being given a glimpse of the day when the Lord Jesus returns. And he is coming in victory. Because Jesus is greater, Jesus is stronger than every enemy that stands opposed to God. And I wonder, do we genuinely believe that? I think we probably believe it cerebrally, don't we? At an intellectual level. But in our hearts, in our lives, day by day, do we genuinely believe that the coming King Jesus is stronger and greater than every enemy that stands opposed to God. He will fight every enemy, and he will be on the victory side. He will emerge from the battle, striding forward in the greatness of his strength. He will emerge robed in splendor and glory. And we cannot even begin to imagine how glorious that scene is going to be. I remember once, a number of years ago, traveling into London for a meeting. Uh, that in itself was not remarkable. What was uh, strange was that as I got off the tube, as usual, at Westminster Tube Station, 
Now, normally when I got off there, you have to fight your way through the hordes of tourists taking photographs of Big Ben. Uh, these days, if you go up, there's no tourists because Big Ben is covered in scaffolding, so it's uh, quite refreshing. But then, on that day, I, I emerged from my usual exit opposite Big Ben, uh, and not only were there hordes of tourists, there were hordes and hordes of police, absolutely everywhere. Police cars, police officers, police horses, and I wondered what on earth has happened if I sort of emerged into a terrorist attack or something like that. But then I realized it was the day of the state opening of Parliament, and it was fascinating to watch as the preparations were made and the route was cleared so the queen could come in all her splendor in the ornate carriage coming in procession to the Houses of Parliament. It's, it's one of those occasions that you realize just how well the British do all that kind of pomp and ceremony. And yet it, it caused me to realize that is nothing. That is nothing compared to the splendor when Jesus will return, robed in his splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength, proclaiming victory and mighty to save. The Lord is coming in victory. And on that day, all of his enemies will lie crushed beneath his feet because no enemy, there is no enemy who has the power to stand against him. The Savior who is mighty to save the Savior who died for us, will come again in glory. And he will emerge from the battle victorious. I wonder whether it ever seems to you as if we're sometimes fighting a losing battle. As if the forces of evil are overpowering us. As if we're up against it and the church perhaps seems frail and fragile. As if those who oppose God and his people are just getting too powerful. Has it ever, ever seemed like that to you? Christian friends, be, this evening be encouraged and strengthened. Jesus will emerge victorious. Isaiah sees him coming. He's proclaiming victory. There will be no doubt about it. Turn to Revelation 6 for a moment. Revelation 6, verse 15. In that chapter, we're seeing that the Lamb of God, Jesus, breaking breaking the seals and and opening the scroll that contains God's plan for the cosmos. And towards the end of chapter 6, the end of time is drawing closer Listen to what John sees, verse 15. Then the king of, kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to, to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? On that day, all those who stand opposed to the Lord, will realize there is no escape. Who can withstand? Jesus will be victorious. There is no doubting it. The Lord is coming in victory. But notice that that cry in Revelation 6 just doesn't just concern Jesus' certain victory. It's a plea, a desperate attempt to escape the wrath of the Lamb. 
Which brings us on to the second thing that Isaiah tells us. Because not only is the Lord coming in victory, the Lord is coming in vengeance. Isaiah has received the answer to who it is that is coming. It's the Lord, mighty to save, proclaiming victory. We understand this to be Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. But but now look, Isaiah asks a second question in verse 2. He's noticed something odd about this coming king. Notice in verse 1, he's he's told us that, that this coming king's garments are stained crimson. And perhaps instinctively, our, our, our minds, we, we, we assume, well, his garments are stained crimson with his own blood. The blood he shed to pay for our sin. But very quickly, we discover that that's not the case. Normally, when we read of blood in the Bible, that, that is what we're meant to assume, but not here. There's a sequence to Isaiah's prophecy. He's, kind of, he's dealt with the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus back in, back in chapter 53. He's, he's past that now. He's, he's looking at something different. He's looking at something far ahead in the distance, way beyond the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here he comes in victory. And yet his clothes are stained crimson. And so Isaiah asks the question, why? Why? Verse 2, why are your garments red? Like one of like those of one treading the wine press. He says what it looks like. It looks like this, this coming king, one who's coming in splendor and glory, it looks like he spent the day treading grapes in the wine press. Getting stained by the juice splattering all over the place. Is, is, that, is that what's been going on? Well, verse 3, Jesus, the coming king, answers the question. He takes up Isaiah's imagery that he's just used, that of a winepress. But as he answers, he makes it clear that the stains on his clothes, they're not caused by grape juice. It is blood after all, but it's not his own. His blood's already been shed for sinners, and yet he's covered in blood now. But it's not his own. It is the blood of his enemies. Why? Why? Because victory comes with vengeance. There can be no ultimate victory for Jesus without vengeance upon his enemies. Vengeance means to to take revenge, just revenge, for wrong. When Jesus returns, that is what he will do. He will exact justice, perfect, holy justice. We, We kind of love the idea of justice, really, don't we? until it's applied to us, but, but we tend to love the idea of justice. We, we have an inbuilt sense of, of what is right and what is wrong, or, or at least we think we do. And, and this really was played out to me when Beth and I used to love watching the TV series Hustle. Any of you watch it? One, Phil, excellent, well done. Uh, but for, for everybody in the room apart from Phil who didn't watch it, well, it was about a group of con artists. But they were presented as the good guys because their principle was to never con an honest man. So they ripped off selfish people, people who, people who trampled all over others to get rich. They were the guys that this group conned. And as viewers, we never ever questioned the fact that we were always on the side of the con artists. We always wanted them to get away with it. Because 
the people they were conning, they were the real bad guys. We have a kind of inbuilt sense of justice, but it's warped. The reality is we have a kind of inbuilt hierarchy of wrongness. But God's sense of justice is perfectly unflawed. And on the day that Jesus returns, he will take vengeance. He will exact perfect justice and revenge for evil. So Isaiah's prophecy brought great hope for God's people. That their enemies, the Edomites, those who had contributed to their suffering, they will be dealt with by God. God will take vengeance. He will bring justice. And, and in a sense, that should bring us great comfort too. We, we who are acutely aware of injustice in the world, of oppression and pain. And yet on the other hand, there's a sense in which we find this deeply uncomfortable, isn't there? It's an awkward truth to hold in many ways, is it, is it not? When I'm talking to non-Christians about Jesus, there, there's... I would say there's one question. There's a, there's a number of questions that I dread in actual fact. But there's one question that comes up pretty often. And it's this. How can a loving God send people to hell? How can a loving God judge me? Isn't God a God of love, they say? Isn't that what the Bible says? And it's interesting. People know that verse of the Bible, that God is love. And when people say that to me, I, I, I have to resist the temptation to say, I, I love the fact that you believe the Bible. Or, or at least that verse. Let's, let me try and convince you to believe the other 65 books, four chapters and 20 verses as well, and we'll see where we go. Uh, but because the God of the Bible is undoubtedly a God of love, but he is also a God of perfect justice. And God, in his justice, will judge evil. And he will judge those who stand opposed to him and his people, those who stubbornly resist his rule and make their stand against him. There is no victory for Jesus without vengeance upon his enemies. In, in the uh, mid-18th century, revival broke out in New England. And one of the great sermons that contributed to that revival was preached by a pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Do you know what the sermon was entitled? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And you see, it was a powerful reminder of God's anger against sin that was used by God to convict hundreds and hundreds of people of their need to be made right with him through faith in the Lord Jesus. In his perfectly righteous anger, God will judge sin and evil. He will exact vengeance upon his enemies, upon all who take their stand against him. Because the reality is, you're either standing with Jesus or against him. Isaiah sees Jesus coming in vengeance. He's coming from the land of Edom. He's soaked in the blood of his enemies. It's a gruesome scene, isn't it? And Jesus likens this work to being in a wine press. Uh, and back in the book of Revelation again, God gives the apostle John multiple insights into what this final day will look like. And, and in Revelation 14, God uses the image of a wine press once again. He, he gives John this, this insight and, and he describes the wine press of God's wrath from which blood flows. The wrath of God 
The anger of God against evil is real and it is biblical. And on the day Jesus returns, he will be coming in victory and in vengeance. He'll take revenge on his enemies, on all who stand against him. Uh, And notice, notice he will do it alone. I have trodden the winepress alone, he says, verse 3. You see, just as he purchased our salvation alone, he alone is the one qualified to bring about this final judgment. And in his righteous anger, he tramples upon his enemies as though they are grapes in a winepress. And on that final day when Jesus returns, his enemies will be crushed like grapes in a winepress. It will be that easy. It will be that decisive. It will be for him the day of vengeance. But it doesn't it just seem sometimes as though people are trampling all over the name of Jesus? It certainly seemed that way to believers in Isaiah's day, that their enemies were trampling all over the name of God. God's glory lay in tatters in those days. And we might think, well, in our own nation today, God's glory lies in tatters. God's glory lies in tatters being trampled on in many countries of the world. In Iran and Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. But the day is coming when Jesus will return in vengeance and he will trample on his enemies. He will do it. And he will do it alone. This is fearsome stuff. And there may be some here this evening who realize that they are heading for God's wrath on that day. You may be realized that you will be counted among the enemies of God in that winepress. But if that is you this evening, then the gracious invitation of the whole Bible is to come to Jesus, the one who died for you. Because although this day of his return is fearsome stuff for those who stand opposed to him, for us who love him, it is the day of hope and glory. For us, it will be victory. For us, it will be life. It will be glory. The whole Bible appeals to humanity to stand with Jesus instead of standing against him. One spells horror, the other spells glory. The Lord is coming. He's coming in victory and he's coming in vengeance. But so what? Should that affect how we live our lives in the present? Well, it did for Isaiah uh, and it should for us too. What did Isaiah do in the light of what he had seen of the day of God's vengeance? Well, he treasured the Lord's steadfast love, verses 7 through 14. Uh, That is what Isaiah does as he begins this prayer in verse 7. It's a prayer that goes on into the passage we'll be looking at next week. Uh, Just listen to some of what he says In this first part of the prayer, though, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel. Isaiah goes on to recall God's unfailing love for his people. Verse 8, he, God, said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. In his love and his mercy, he redeemed them. 
You see, when confronted with the reality of God's coming judgment upon his enemies, the reality of the coming day of vengeance, what is Isaiah's response? Well, he bows in prayer and he reflects on the Lord's great love for his people. Reflect upon, treasure the steadfast love that means that we are safe from that coming vengeance. We do not deserve in any way, shape, or form, do we, to be free from God's wrath, the prospect of God's judgment. And yet, by His grace, we do not have to fear. We live in the wonderful state of no condemnation. Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Grasp the magnitude of that verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? Because of our rebellion against God, we deserve God to be against us. God will stand against his enemies, and he will win. We deserve God to be against us. And yet, because of his grace shown to us in Christ, if God is for us, if you're in Christ, God is for you. Isn't that an astonishing thing? God is for us. Who can be against us? The wrath that will be poured out on his enemies when Jesus returns will not be poured out on you if you belong to Jesus. Why? Because it was poured out on on Jesus himself. As Isaiah treasures the Lord's steadfast love, it comforts him immensely. It strengthens him for the weight. How much more should we be comforted as we treasure the love of God that was displayed in all its gruesome glory at the cross of Christ. And yet Isaiah also remembers the fact that Israel did not respond to God's love with the devotion he demanded of them. Verse 10, they rebelled against him. They grieved his spirit. So he turned and became their enemy and fought against them. That, of course, is what led the people of God ending up in exile in the first place. They'd rebelled against God, and so he acted to discipline them in order to draw them back. And it reminds us, doesn't it, Isaiah's words there remind us that even though we have the most extraordinary display of love the world has ever seen to look back on, so often we forget the Lord, our Savior. As the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Isaiah's prayer calls us, in the light of the coming day of God's vengeance, to treasure the Lord's steadfast love for us. Give thanks that even when we are unfaithful and forgetful, he is utterly faithful. Treasure the Lord's steadfast love that means we are not consumed. We can look back on a greater display of love than Isaiah could really have dreamt of. Isaiah calls us to treasure the Lord's steadfast love, but also, finally, to tell of God's steadfast love. Beginning of verse 7. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord. 
Isaiah's prayer is not just a silent, personal prayer of thanksgiving. This is a public declaration, a proclamation of the Lord's kindness and love that he has shown through all the generations. You see, to be one of God's people, to be redeemed by the suffering servant who died for us, to be one of God's people, confident of glory and not of horror on the day of Jesus' return, to be one of God's people is not just a matter of sitting back content and giving thanks in our own heart for God's love. To be one of God's people is to be a herald, proclaimer of that great love that opens its arms to all who will come. <clears throat> Remember earlier I asked you what you would have done if on the 10th of September 2001 you knew with certainty what was going to happen the following day. What would you have done if one of your loved ones was due to be on one of those flights? Would you not have warned them? told them of the danger they faced. So what is Isaiah's call to us? Well, there is a day coming when Jesus will return. It will be a day of victory. It will be a day of vengeance. And Isaiah's call to us as he begins this prayer is that we might tell of God's love in order that those who are heading for judgment might come into the glorious knowledge of grace. Now, the hard reality is that many of us here this evening. In fact, I would be fairly certain all of us here this evening have loved ones who at the moment will find themselves on the wrong side of the battle when Jesus returns. Only Jesus can rescue them from that danger, but he calls us to make known to them the greatness of his love. We cannot read passages like this which point us to the end of time and point us to the to the, the, the battle that will be won. We cannot read passages like this without being profoundly challenged and convicted. Does what we know about the future affect how we are living in the present? Does it affect how we are warning people? Does it affect how we are praying for people? How are we pleading with God for opportunities this week? to speak of Jesus to those who are near and dear to us, yet who are outside of faith. Louis Pasteur, the discoverer who discovered the principles of vaccination, lived at a time when thousands of people died each year from rabies. He had worked on a vaccine for years, just as he was about to begin experimenting on himself. A, a nine-year-old boy named Joseph Meister was bitten by a rabid dog. The boy's mother begged Louis Pasteur to experiment on her son instead of himself. So for 10 days, Louis Pasteur injected the young boy, and he lived. Decades later, when Pasteur was asked what he would like written on his tombstone when he died, he said three words, Joseph Meister lived. That was his greatest legacy. Will our greatest legacy be those who live eternally because we have heralded the good news of God's love? How many people may be snatched from the jaws of hell because we told them of the Lord's great love shown at the cross of Jesus? There's that haunting line in the hymn, Facing a Task Unfinished, haunting line that says this, Unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. 
It's a chilling reminder, isn't it, of the urgency of the task at hand. Isaiah calls us in the certainty of, in light of the certainty of God's day of vengeance, to not only treasure the Lord's love, which I trust we all do, but to tell of the Lord's love. Like God's people in Isaiah's day, we are waiting for the Lord to come. As we reflect on the fulfillment of all God's promises, we can rest assured that he'll keep that one as well. The Lord is coming in victory and in vengeance. May we treasure his love that means we are not consumed. May we tell of his love to others. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you that you are a victorious God. We praise you for our Savior Jesus, who demonstrated your awesome power as he was raised from the dead. We thank you that in his death he purchased salvation for us. We thank you that in his resurrection power he promises life and glory to us. Give us courage and strength and hope as we wait for his return. Lord, as we spend this moment in the quiet, we lift to you those who are near and dear to us, who are unsaved. Lord, for those who you have brought into our minds in those few moments, we ask that you would give us opportunities to tell of your great love for them that you have shown in your son, Jesus. Help us to long for his return. Help us to haste his return. Help us to be faithful people who tell others of his great love. Amen. Amen. Let's sing our closing hymn. Uh, Look, you saints, the sight is glorious.